welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Hope you've had a chance to check out Counterpunch Plus, the brand new subscriber section on the website. That's now replaced the print magazine. I know, I know it's hard to see a longtime print publication be retired, but such is the reality of the modern media landscape, especially for the alternative media. And so we have to change with the times. And so although the print magazine has now been retired, Counterpunch Plus is now fully operational. That has all of the same columns, all of the great content, the great columnists, plus the guest contributors. And you'll also get additional content, including uh, book reviews, cultural criticism, investigative pieces, a lot more on Counterpunch Plus, including some of my work, I believe. Uh, So please do go there. It's a great way to support Counterpunch. We've been around for more than 25 years. We plan on being around for at least another 25. That, of course, requires that we have the support of those people who really value independent journalism from the left. These kinds of critical perspectives that you get at Counterpunch, go to the website. Please do become a subscriber. You can also support my work on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Eric Drates or a lot more uh, videos, uh, essays, political commentaries, a whole lot more there. Really appreciate those of you who have done that as well. So um, I have thrown those things out there and now I'm going to shift and ask you to focus your attention on another project which is about to be launched, which really does require some support as well. It's going to be a very, very important resource for all of us. Before I get to that, let me introduce the brains behind it. Mike Fox returns to Counterpunch Radio, I think for like the third or fourth time now. Mike is a multi Multimedia journalist. He's the former editor of the NACLA Report on the Americas, his website, mfox.us. And most importantly, he is the mastermind behind the brand new, yet to be released, but forthcoming podcast, Brazil on Fire. Go to Kickstarter, become a supporter, get this podcast produced. It's so, so critical to get insight analysis from the ground in Brazil during these times of fascist Bolsonaro reign. Mike has been there the whole time reporting on it. Mike's got a new podcast coming. Help him get that off the ground. Help him come to Counterpunch Radio. Mike, welcome back. (laughs) Thanks so much, Eric. It was a lot. I don't know. I might cut some of that. Whatever. We'll see, Mike. I'm very happy to have you again to talk about so many things, so many tragedies uh, going on simultaneously. I guess the first, of course, being the twin tragedies of the United States and Brazil having slipped into real fascism over these last few years. But it does feel like we have this very unique moment now as we uh, transition away from Trump and towards Biden. And we've talked here on this show, Mike, the last few weeks about this moment and what it means and how we should analyze it. And I want to ask you what you think about this moment of transition and how it might relate to things that are going on in Brazil. Well, listen, extremely important. And I think before we talk about this moment of transition, it's important to contextualize the relationship that Bolsonaro, President Bolsonaro has had with Trump and what Trump has meant for Bolsonaro and for Brazil. I mean, you know, that's the reason why they call Trump, the uh, they call Bolsonaro the Trump of the tropics, right? He, he has inspired himself by Trump. He's idolized him. He's been to the U.S. four times in two years to meet with Trump. I mean, he signed agreements. They've developed relationship. In fact, they've even signed an agreement 
to exploit the Amazon uh, with private companies to help develop the Amazon with U.S. and Brazilian private companies jointly. This was right after the fires last year, the the fires that that kind of ripped across the region. Um, and so it's important to understand this very, very deep relationship. So Bolsonaro, he was, you know, obviously cheering, fighting hard, lobbying hard for, for Trump to win when it looked like uh, Trump was not going to win. And even in the following days, Bolsonaro had still uh, did not call Biden uh, to, to give his, um, you know, his, his, his congratulations um, because he was still hoping he was kind of, you know, following Trump's line. And um, so it's really important to understand that that deep, deep relationship and what Bolsonaro has meant for Brazil this is going to be a huge hit for him. Biden's win is massive for Brazil in that sense. It's uh, it's it's a change. It's going to mean a change in the relationship between Brazil and the United States. Uh, and even now, as Bolsonaro starts to shift in the direction of kind of accepting Biden's incoming presidency, it, he he still doesn't like it. It's not it's not a good thing for him because of what Trump has meant for him and what it might mean for Bolsonaro two years from now. I mean, I was reporting and interviewing a bunch of people ahead of time, uh, political analysts as well. And many of them were saying, listen, you know, Bolsonaro's election in many ways happened because of Trump's election. And now what we're seeing, everyone is looking to the United States States with the U.S. election to see what may happen in Brazil in two years. So those type of relationships is extremely key. Now with Biden, I mean, Look, in the area of foreign relations, uh, men in overall, in general, foreign relations has been uh, more or less uh, U.S. Brazil tied, except for maybe the Lula years, where Lula and Dilma and the left really tried to invert things, and they focus much more on a South-South relations, multipolar world, ALBA, and all these kind of international integration forums in order to counter the U.S. But before and after that, we were really seeing this. The situation of Brazil being a sub hegemon to the United States, and those were that that relationship is going to continue whether or not Trump is there. But one of the main areas that's going to be key, 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 and extremely important uh, is the area of the Amazon and in, in, in the environment. I and mean, we already saw Biden talking about this in the campaign, talking about the fact that uh, you know he's going to consider sanctions against Bolsonaro or pushing back. In fact, in fact, Bolsonaro then pushed back on Biden saying, you know, hey, this is our own sovereign country. We can do what we want to. So that's going to be a key area of conflict. And, and environmentalists and many people around around the world and people within Brazil are extremely excited to see a new government come into play in the United States that can really push back on Bolsonaro with respect to the Amazon. Because Bolsonaro, um, he's really, he's, he's kind of taken the brakes off. He's empowered uh, land owners, he's empowered uh, land grabbers to really move into indigenous land conservation areas um, to 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 clear trees, deforestation, set fires, and that's how come we've seen the largest amount of deforestation uh, in 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 twelve years. The, the largest fires in a decade was this year. Um, Bolsonaro, he's gutted environmental agencies, he's gutted indigenous agencies. So we're going to see that pushback from Biden uh, and Biden's government, hopefully, and that is extremely key. And of course, the, just the, the 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 symbol, right? The, the it's a huge symbolic win of having Biden in there, uh, and that's going to mean a big shift. But like I said, foreign relations, things aren't going to change there that much. Um, it's important to remember that the that the that the anti-corruption investigations that would 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 take out 
Lula, would imprison Lula, stop Lula from being able to run in the 2018 elections and open the door for Bolsonaro, those were done with relationships with the United States, with the FBI, uh, who were literally in Brazil working collectively on this with Brazilians. Um, and that was done under Obama. You know, that was done under Obama's watch. It was done with, when Biden was was vice president. Right. So in terms of that level of collaboration with Brazil, those things aren't necessarily going to change. One big question, as and probably many of your listeners have not even heard of this, but um, just last year, Brazilian Knights, uh, United States signed agreements to permit the U.S. to use Brazil's satellite launch center in Alcantara Maranhão in northeastern Brazil. Now, I was there late last year because the problem is, is that if this deal goes through, uh, and it already has, but if if it's if it's actually developed and actually is you know becomes concrete, it will likely lead to the eviction of hundreds of of local black traditional black families uh, called quilombos who live on dozens and dozens of villages that are just outside the, the the satellite launch center. And they're slated to be removed in order for the expansion of the satellite launch center. So there's a big question about what does that mean and whether pressure can be put on the, the Biden administration to try and to try and roll back that and that relationship because of what this will mean for the the Quilombo communities there. So there's a lot of questions that are still in play, but obviously this is a huge win for Brazilians, Brazilians on the left, progressives, uh, and 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 the fact that Biden won and Trump lost means that it it increases the chances for for a Bolsonaro defeat uh, two years from now when we have the presidential elections in Brazil. There's obviously a lot more that can be said about Biden, what the Biden victory means, but Biden uh, isn't the left, of course. Anybody who knows U.S. politics knows that, well, in the course of mainstream U.S. politics, there really is no left. But uh, as far as Biden goes, he's a right winger. I mean, he's a right. He's about as right wing as Democrats come. So when we're talking about Biden's victory, that's not exactly a victory of the left. And yet, Bolsonaro also does have to look to his left, and we have seen victories for the left very recently. Of course, we've talked about it on this show, the massive uh, triumph in Bolivia, the victory of the of the left government there, of course, the return of Evo Morales and the, uh, the return of the movement for socialism there, uh, the victory of the leftish forces and the leftish government in Argentina. So there does seem to be some movement on the left in Latin America as well. So can you speak? And then of course, AMLO in Mexico, but that's questionable in its own way. But can you speak a little bit about the pressure now that Bolsonaro has on the left in the region? Well, this is really important um, because if you think about just two years ago when Bolsonaro came into power, when he was elected with 55% of the vote, um, like you said, Macri was in power in Argentina. They had very, very close relationships. Um, <laughs> we we saw the coup happen in Bolivia. Um, you had Chile it just seemed like it was par for the course with the right continuing with its neoliberal, neoliberal project that it's had since the Pinochet days. Um, and so, so, yeah, it was definitely, I mean, Brazil, the, the, the region was on the ropes and Bolsonaro's victory just pushed it that much more to the end. I, I think that's part of the reason why you had um, 
um, Bannon, Steve Bannon, pushing to develop his movement, his right-wing movement in the region. In fact, he chose Bolsonaro's son to be the representative of his movement group in, in the region. So it was it was very concerning. And I think that's one of the most exciting things that we've seen just over the last years. You have the, the, the constitutional referendum in Chile, the massive protests, and now this push to, to really roll back the, the, the Pinochet um, neoliberal shock doctrine, you know, that's been in place for, you know, since the 1970s. Obviously, like you mentioned, Eva Morales, you know, being able to come back home uh, to Bolivia with Luis Arce, is just is, is was was amazing victory in in Bolivia the loss of Macri um, you know in Argentina and so all of these things are really really key and so Bolsonaro's in that sense is feeling it from all sides literally all sides right <laughs> you have Argentina in the south Bolivia just to the west and we can't forget Venezuela and this is really key too because you know just like you know last year why those influence Juan Guaido. Uh, his influence is, is is now you know waning. It's very clear that he's not able to do what the United States hoped he was going to do. You know, as of last year, it seemed like a U.S. invasion with the support of of, of Brazil was potentially imminent because there were no other left countries to really stand up to that. Uh, and and now you've got the recent National Assembly elections where you know Chavez and left forces have now taken over the majority back in the National Assembly because of course the right. Uh, as they decided to to not participate again, um, and so what you you do have this kind of wave of 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 left governments. Kind of, it's not a return of the pink tide because this does you cannot compare this to what things looked like, you know, a decade and a half ago. But is definitely shifting back in the other direction. It's extremely important pushback to what Bolsonaro represents in the region. So we talk a little bit about the pressure that he's feeling internationally, the pressure that seems to be boxing him in. But now give us some insights into the pressures that he's feeling at home. Recent elections were, I think, universally considered to be a significant loss for Bolsonaro, although uh, it wasn't necessarily a wipeout for his forces. He's definitely lost some of his luster. So can you speak a little bit about those election results? Well, first of all, what were the elections? Uh, what was up for grabs? Etc. Uh, what's the makeup of the government look like, and what can we really take away from these most recent elections? Great question. So the local elections, you had city councilors who were up around the country who were up for election, as well as mayors' offices around the country. Uh, the the big big takeaway is that Bolsonaro lost everywhere. Basically, any any candidate that he chose to support. Um, lost big. I think only two people actually won or were reelected of his of his people around the country. Um, and in fact, there are candidates in Brazil where you're allowed to include if you have a nickname, you're in cloud, you're allowed to include that on the ticket. So of course, a lot of people ran on on tickets, including Bolsonaro's name in their names, uh, and almost every single one of those people lost. So that was extremely important. Now, part of that is because. Last year, Bolsonaro left the party that he had had he had he had won and and come into power with, and he left it with the goal of building a new party, uh, a new kind of evangelical, uh, pro-military, far-right party that was going to really take charge. Um, but he wasn't able to get; they weren't able to get the signatures enough in order to actually run that party in the elections. And so not having the party machine meant that he wasn't able to actually 
put up people for office and not having any sort of a party meant that, you know, he was kind of swimming in the air. In fact, at one point he said he wasn't even going to support anybody. And he, then he changed his tune and started, you know, backing bunches of people in kind of his lives, his Facebook lives in the days up to the, up to the election. And, and it really did no good. In fact, there was one case uh, with a woman uh, up in, up in, in, in Northern Brazil, who he came out in her support for a local mayor's office and her party actually said, we don't want your support. Uh, and they rejected his support because of what they were seeing was happening, how every single person he was supporting was, was losing, or they were actually losing votes. So that's really, really key, um, to understand where, where, where Bolsonaro looks and his forces stand at this moment. Now, at the same time, the right, the more traditional right gained more ground, uh, than before. And so that's kind of an interesting look at, at, at the, at the way that Brazil is shifting. Now. If you look at the mainstream media, most of the mainstream media said that the left lost big. In fact, there was one pundit who said that this was the greatest defeat for the Workers' Party in particular in 40 years. And that was just actually not the case at all. The Workers' Party won uh, four large cities. Um, Peso, who's this uh, kind of a smaller um, party breakoff of the Workers' Party back in the early 2000s, they won the the capital of the state of Pará, Belém. So that was a huge victory. And, you know, if you go back four years, back in 2016, that was in the middle of, of course, there was the coup against, the congressional coup against Dilma Rousseff. Um, and it was the middle of the, the anti-corruption task force, which they were blaming the, the, the left and particularly the Workers' Party for all of corruption that had happened in the history of Brazil, basically. Um, and at that point, because of this campaign against the Workers' Party, the Workers' Party actually dropped from sixth to the 10th largest party in, the, in terms of in the number of mayors of cities over 200,000. Well, this last time it rose back up to seventh. Um, and so that was huge. Um, there's this fascinating graph of the 26 state capitals. Uh, and you saw in this last, in, in the local elections, the PT rose from fifth to the second largest political party in terms of the elected city council members. Um, so that's key to note understanding that, that this was not a major defeat for the left. Uh, really, it was a major defeat for, for Bolsonaro. Uh, and it came uh, amid his polling is actually not that bad. He's been polling somewhere between 40 and 35%. He's always polled roughly right around where Trump is. And his supporters are in roughly the same, the same area uh, you know, when, when you think of, you know, obviously white supremacists in, in Brazil's, uh, demographical makeup, we're talking about, you know, pro-military evangelical, um, and, uh, and many conspiratorial and that we're seeing that more and more, we'll get into the whole vaccine issue, but we're seeing that more and more lately. Um, but there were a couple places where the left did, uh, also lose. They were very, very close. We're talking about in Porto Alegre, Manuela Davila, who was the vice presidential candidate um, back against Bolsonaro in 2018. She lost by just a couple of points in, in, the, in a runoff. And Guillermo Bolos, uh, who's the leader of the Homeless Workers Union, he lost in Sao Paulo by, uh, by a roughly uh, a close margin. And what we saw again, the same situation we've seen in the past is obviously these fake news campaigns, uh, social media campaigns kind of obviously against uh, left figures. So that continues. We also saw a, a, a very high number of violence, violence against candidates. Uh, and so that's concerning because that increases and it's continued in Brazil. 
Um, but again, I think the big takeaway from elections is Bolsonaro's big loss. Now, what's interesting is at this point, after he's lost in, in, these, in these local elections, then his polling numbers dipped a little bit in recent days. And that's partially because of the fact that the... So back at the very beginning of the coronavirus crisis, his government announced that they would be giving uh, a monthly stipend to low-wage workers, to informal sector workers of roughly $100 a month, a little over $100 a month, uh, and that that would continue for several months. And so it continued until roughly August, then it was decreased in half, uh, and that runs out this month. And so most people are expecting his numbers to drop to take a significant dive in kind of the first couple of weeks in January, unless he decides to continue uh, with that stipend. Because of course, coronavirus continues and yet still people um, are not able to, to, to go out and work the way that, that, um, that, that, that they should be or would be in a, in a, in a normal economy. So things are not looking, uh, they're not looking that great for Bolsonaro at the moment. So many parallels between Brazil and the United States, obviously thinking about this coronavirus question, the economic hardship, the, uh, you know, the precarity of so many millions of Americans who are also dependent upon the politics surrounding stimulus checks and, you know, all of that. Um, but there are other parallels that I think are worth noting. And so I wanted to just ask you before we go to the break, if you could introduce for us what has happened recently in Brazil around Black Lives Matter and specifically the most recent incident, uh, let's call it the sort of George Floyd moment uh, in Brazil. Tell us a little bit about what happened and what it sparked on the streets. Yeah, so this is key because people, you know, there's this myth out there, this myth of, of racial democracy in Brazil that since, um, you know, since you had no official segregation policy like you had in the United States, then racism doesn't exist in Brazil. And that is a myth. It's completely a lie. It's institutionalized. It's ingrained. Um, and what we saw, we saw this again, just days after the first round election in Porto Alegre, which is the southernmost, the capital of the southernmost state. In fact, one interesting takeaway from the election was that for the first time in Porto Alegre's uh, history, in the history of the city, you had a block of black city council members be elected to Congress, a, a caucus of young black radical city council members, five people. Um, and so that was that was something that, that people were really, you know, cheering about, celebrating this win in Porto Alegre. And just days later, you had uh, a welder, father of five. His name was João Alberto Silveira Freitas, 40 year old. And he was beaten to death by two security officers, security guards at a Cajifur supermarket in Porto Alegre. Um, and, you know, the video went viral, uh, just like George Floyd. Basically, they just they beat him. They escorted him out. They beat him. And then they sat on his neck uh, and suffocated him. That was the, the coroner's um, report was that he had died from suffocation. Uh, and Black Lives Matter protests exploded across the country in Porto Alegre, Sao Paulo. Basically, these protests, they centered in Cajifor supermarkets uh, far and wide, um, really protesting kind of the, the, the policies of, of, of Cajifor, which it also has kind of a history of, of labor busting and also racist um, incidents. And um, 
you know, it, it's important for people to remember. And, you know, I was speaking with a lot of folks around that time, members of the black movement, uh, including um, Mateos Gomez, who was one of the black city council members who was just elected. And they were saying that every 23 minutes, a young black man is killed in Brazil. More than 50,000 young black men and women are killed every year in Brazil. And, you know, this is just, a, it's, it's another terrifying example of, of the racist reality that is Brazil uh, and that happens around the country. And it is important to understand that, you know, Porto Alegre is one of the most racist cities in the country. This is, this is in a region, in a state, Rio Grande do Sul, where Bolsonaro won with 63% of the vote, uh, where some of the cities, because there are some, um, <clears throat> there are some small communities there where they still speak German. These are kind of where, where German descendants move there, they have their own dialect. Uh, and some of the cities in, in Rio Grande do Sul, they won, Bolsonaro won with, with over 90% of the vote. Uh, and it's just a reminder of the legacy uh, of racism, of institutionalized racism that still exists in, in Brazil, and particularly under Bolsonaro, how he is, because he is, again, in this case, like we've seen with him empowering landowners and uh, and land grabbers. We've seen him in, empowering uh, white supremacists, just like Trump. There's so many parallels. Uh, but this is another case of, of what we saw him, you know, empowering, uh, you know, white supremacists and racism generally across the country. Uh, and so that, of course, exploded. It lasted for several days, these marches, um, some very, very powerful marches. There was a funeral procession um, for Joao Freitas, um, and, you know, this, it's not over. We're going to be seeing, continue to see um, these types of protests, you know, popping off uh, unless something is really done. And if you could, just in a minute or two, uh, just help us uh, understand how it is in Brazil with respect to police and police violence, because, of course, in this case, these are private security guards. Um, you kind of detailed some of the history around the, the this particular chain and, you know, their use of private security. But in terms of broadly speaking through Brazil, I mean, is it as viciously militarized as the United States? Is it less so? How is it connected to the right wing, to the uh, legacy of the dictatorship? Speak a little bit about law enforcement in Brazil. Well, it's absolutely viciously militarized. In fact, if you look back uh, at Marielle Franco back in, in March of 2018, she was the young black city councilwoman uh, who was killed, assassinated in her car, as well as her driver. And her killing really popped off a massive Black Lives Matter movement around the country and around the world, demanding justice. And here we are over a thousand days later, and we still don't have justice, but many people, uh, and, we, and we still don't know who it was that killed her or why, but many point to the fact that she was adamantly against uh, the the military intervention. So basically what you have is obviously the favelas of Rio. These are places where you have narco-traffickers, you have militias, paramilitaries who are um, members of the police force and they battle it out. They had at that point, this was early 2018, they had militarized uh, the, the Rio de Janeiro's favela. So they had sent in the, the, the Brazilian military to try and battle the narco-traffickers. And of course, we were seeing, you know, human rights violations and we're seeing deaths and killings against civilians. Um, and, and she spoke out very, very clearly against this. And many people made that connection 
uh, that 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 her death could have come about because of this. She was also very much involved in in many of the research and the reports um, about the militias, about the paramilitaries who were doing their own dirty work uh, in the favelas of, of, of Rio de Janeiro. So it's really in, important to understand that these linkages are happening and they're very, very connected. And you know what? There's many connections to the Bolsonaro family. Uh, you know, we, it's just looking back that according to everything that we've seen so far, it seems like the killers that were the ones who pulled the trigger or at least drove the car, they met in Bolsonaro's little isolated condominium community in this upscale neighborhood in Rio de Janeiro before they drove out to go kill Marielle Franco, according to the evidence. So things like that are extremely concerning. Um, and, you know, the and, and, and the ties run very deep. I don't have the stats in front of me. I'm going to try and dig them up for the for the second half of the show. Um, but the killings, you know, have increased the killings by by police and the military against Brazilians, in, in particularly in poor communities, they've increased under under the pandemic. And in fact, we saw this one um, <clears throat> this one massacre that happened against Brazilians in in this favela. I believe it was in April or May, where the police moved in uh, in an attack against narco traffickers. You know, completely ignoring the the social restrictions that everybody should should need to have, right? And they shot up the neighborhood. The uh, people were killed, civilians were killed, and the and they did nothing with the body. It was the residents who actually had to take the bodies out, this, despite the fact that we were in the middle of a pandemic and they should be socially isolating. They were the ones who actually had to deal with the bodies and so and to and to clean up their neighborhoods. And so this is the type of thing that we've seen uh, in Brazil, and 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 so absolutely, the, it is ongoing. It is absolutely militaristic. And like I said, for the second half, I'm going to see if I can find some the the latest statistics on, 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 on killings by the Brazilian police and military. Well, sit there on the edge of your seat while Mike digs up those stats, or maybe he doesn't. Who knows? Listen to the music during the break. We'll come back. We'll continue the conversation with Mike Fox. Go to his website, mfox.us. Go to Kickstarter. Support the coming podcast, Brazil on Fire, and we'll be right back.
And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio chatting with Mike Fox. Again, the website mfox.us, the coming podcast, Brazil on Fire. We'll be talking a little bit about that in a few minutes. But before we do, Mike, uh, just before the break, you said you were going to uh, dig up some stats for us. What do you have on police killings in Brazil? Yeah, so according to uh, reports from September, you had 3,148 people were killed by police in the first half of the year alone throughout the country. Uh, and that's roughly 7% higher than the same period last year, despite the pandemic, despite the fact that people were were, were actually socially isolating. Um, so it's just a devastating number. And it is, I think, important to just add that at the same time as we've had this uptick in the number of police killings, you've also had an absolute increase in the number of evictions. And this has been uh, widespread, particularly in the the state of Sao Paulo. But it's as if, um, and I did a story on this for for PRI's The World, it's as if um, they've wanted to take advantage the local... Uh, governments and governors and cities have wanted to take advantage of the pandemic, the fact that people can't get out and protest or or didn't want to get out and protest, at least in, in the first few months, um, to just evict people as much as possible. And when I say evict people, there's evictions, obviously, you know, for, for renters, uh, and that is happening as well. But then there's evictions, I'm talking about evictions of entire communities. Uh, you know, if you remember Brazil, a lot of the way that people get by if they don't have the means to support themselves, you know, is they'll they'll move to kind of makeshift homes. This is the strategy of the MST, the landless workers movement, where they move on to settlements to try and force agrarian reform and kind of build their communities, whether or not they have the the, the actual title to the land. And so these kind of makeshift communities are grown. And that's happened increasingly during the time of the pandemic because people don't have anywhere else to go uh, and because of people losing their jobs and whatever else. And so according to to reports from a, a few months ago, the Homeless um, People's Union and, 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 and different groups say that the number of people in the streets has increased by 50% under the pandemic and evictions, uh, at least this was as of a couple of months ago, evictions had, had literally doubled under the pandemic. So extremely concerning figures just in the middle of the pandemic as, as local officials are trying to take advantage of the pack that the fact that people were isolating at least and are and many people are still trying to isolate um, to to kind of to, to push back on, on on local communities and social movements and whatnot. Well, you sort of anticipated my next question there, Mike, because that's precisely what I wanted to ask you about the coronavirus, how COVID is impacting Brazil. I mean, you've already kind of given us a little bit of a snapshot there, but widen widen the perspective for us. Um, when did COVID really uh, uh, hit Brazil? We know, of course, Brazil is one of the worst cases in the world, along with the United States and maybe a few other countries. But um, how has it uh, impacted Brazil? How has it proceeded? And um, how is it impacting the poor? How is it impacting those uh, living in the favelas and uh, you know those who don't have access to health care and things like this? So give us a little bit of an understanding of what it's like on the streets in Brazil in time of pandemic? Well, great question. And I think it's important to understand, first off, that um, Brazil, Bolsonaro, of course, being inspired by Trump, really uh, looked to Trump as how he should run 
uh, the response to the pandemic, which is essentially not run a response, right? Uh, and that's what we saw was where you would, Brazil has the means, it's important to understand Brazil has a, a, um, a universal healthcare system that is world renowned. And it's extremely important because of the high inequality in the country and the large, um, the, the huge number of poor. So without this universal healthcare system, really Brazil would not have the ability to, to even even try to weather the storm how it has. So A, that's extremely important. And this universal healthcare system has has kept things from being worse than they could be. Uh, Brazil is also, it, it, is, it is very, very good at combating infectious diseases. Remember that Brazil, it was, was ground zero for the Zika virus just a few years ago. Um, it is totally accustomed to malaria outbreaks, dengue, chikungunya, these things. And so it has a very robust and very developed system at combating infectious diseases and viruses. Um, and it even has a very good uh, system in terms of tracking diseases and, and, and tracking cases of those diseases. But this has not been able, it's, it, healthcare workers have done their best, but they have not been able to do it uh, as adequately as possible because of the ineptitude, largely at the very top. Uh, the a federal plan was never put into effect. There were, I believe we, we shuffled through three health ministers in the very beginning uh, months. And this is largely due to the fact that the other health ministers were not going to, they were not going to bow down to what Bolsonaro wanted, which was essentially reopen the economy, not have any sort of social isolating, a social isolation, and, uh, and just get everyone back to work. And he said that continuously. In fact, I think it was after the first, as soon as Brazil broke China's uh, record for the number of dead from coronavirus, his response to a journalist was, uh, so what? what? What do you want me to do about it? And he still has that uh, same response. Um, in fact, just a couple days ago, uh, when, I think it was when when Brazil broke 180,000 deaths and the, and, and the 7 million mark in terms of number of cases, uh, his response was, boy, you know, I didn't, I didn't expect us to be looking so good uh, at this point. You know, Brazil, it's almost like we, we've, we, we've normalized things. It's like everything is back to normal, which is, which is a big concern because at this point, um, you know, our levels are in terms of the number of cases, and the number of dead are right around where we were back in the height back in May when things were really kicking off. Uh, and they're headed to be spiking. I mean, that's the direction we're headed into as we head into summer. Um, and as, um, you know, uh, as, as people are, are, are looking to forward toward vacation, an idea of some sort of a lockdown is just not going to happen. Um, and, you know, local officials don't want that to happen. And uh, the hotels are packed and are, are rented out. And, and so we're going to see cases spiking um, like we haven't seen before. And, and local healthcare workers are very concerned about what this may mean you know, for the, for the coming weeks and the coming months. In ICU units in many cities right now, you know, Rio de Janeiro, uh, Campo, Bom, and, uh, many different places. And here in Florianópolis, where I'm based, are at roughly 90% uh, and, they're, and they're increasing. And so these are major concerns for the country. Now, the, the coronavirus... It really took off in mid-March. So Brazil has, it's been interesting because Brazil's followed 
uh, the United States roughly kind of two months behind, between a month and two months behind. So whatever happens in the United States, then Brazil sees it because of the fact that we're, we're, we're following very similar kind of pattern because of the fact that our lack of a plan, uh, you know, has has meant that Brazil is 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 kind of in the exact same boat. Uh, and in fact, even the the you know Bolsonaro saying that it's not that big of a deal. Bolsonaro's own um, championing of hydroxychloroquine and, and, and chloroquine, you know, of course, the unproven anti-malarial drugs that Trump was also championing. It's just it's just fascinating the the, the intense parallels that we have with with the United States and Brazil and that it's extremely important to understand where things are right now. And we're seeing this again right now. Bolsonaro has already said he is not going to take a vaccine. He doesn't want a vaccine. Just today, the Supreme Court mandated yesterday, I mean, the Supreme Court mandated the use of uh, that vax that everyone must get a vaccine around the country. And his response was, well, where's our freedom? That's not going to happen. Uh, and in fact, his supporters, they, they, uh, they went viral over social media, tweeting out, um, uh, we need to Ukraineize hashtag Ukraineize Brazil, essentially implode the country, break it apart. And they, and they have a uh, protest planned for just next week. So it's, it's a complicated moment. Bolsonaro has been playing politics with coronavirus. Uh, we've seen those politics, him butting heads with local governors around the, the situation of, uh, of of social isolation measures way back in May. Uh, and, and then Brazil started to reopen back in June too early. And that's why cases continue to rise. And he's still butting heads with, with people now around the, the vaccines, which are supposed to start to roll out just next month. Now, of course, your question, how are the poor, how are the folks in the favelas and the poorest communities, and in particular, indigenous communities weathering the storm. And it has not, it has not been easy. It's important to remember that although the universal healthcare system is universal, the better hospitals and the areas where that universal healthcare system is more robust is in the South. It is not in the North and the Northeast where some of the, 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 the poor communities are. It's definitely not indigenous communities, which are far toward the North and far, far from um, from 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 you know the the major cities where they have uh, the the largest ICUs and the capabilities and whatnot. So that's been extremely complicated, um, and it's meant that you know increasing number of people have been really affected. Now, what has been a saving grace has been this monthly stipend, which is which has enabled uh, poor communities to really be able to get by, particularly in those early months. But even until today, we're going to see what happens in the coming months when, since that is, it, it looks like that's going to be cut from January on. And it's extremely concerning, but I was talking particularly in those, those early weeks, those early months, talking with a lot of people in the favelas in Rio de Janeiro and other places and asking them how they were handling it. Uh, and, and they were receiving no support from the government. Now this was right before those stipends started to kick in. Uh, there were local organizations that were trying to bring in kind of what they call cestas basicas, which is basically like little food baskets, you know, of rice and, and pasta and thing to, to communities because people, because of the social isolations, people couldn't get out of their neighborhoods to go out. And because many informal workers, you know, they get by by, or they're doing construction work or they're doing hair or they're selling things in the streets and nobody was on the streets. They couldn't even get out to do that. So things have obviously opened up much more now at this point but there are still major, major concerns because as of right now, you know, obviously, like I said, 7 million people roughly have 
contracted the virus. They've, 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 they've gotten the virus here in Brazil. But, you know, that is a far cry from the 70% of the, the population that they say need to get it before the, the you know, coronavirus ends. Um, and so the, the cases continue to spike around the country. And like I said, people are really concerned for what this might mean in, in, in the coming weeks and coming months. We had heard reports that coronavirus was ravaging some of the indigenous communities, particularly some of those that are a bit more geographically isolated. Uh, I don't know how much truth there is to that. Maybe you could speak to that. But my question is really not so much about the virus ravaging indigenous communities, but about the landowners doing that. We've heard uh, continued uh, reports of escalating violence against indigenous uh, communities, including some of the leaders of those communities, uh, particularly those who have uh, challenged the landowners who obviously have the backing of Bolsonaro, of course, targeted assassinations, the impunity around those kind of assassinations. This is a long and uh, painful story that is ongoing in Brazil. So can you speak a little bit about the killings of the indigenous community leaders and uh, some of the other uh, people in leadership positions, how that is proceeding, whether the coronavirus has slowed that down, escalated it? What is the story there? Well, what we've seen in the Amazon uh and what has been the most concerning is the fact that, like you said, it's almost as if there's a triple or quadruple attack on the indigenous communities. So obviously there's coronavirus, which is which has been even more of a concern for the indigenous communities because of um, the lack of resistance that they have to diseases like this and illnesses like this. Um, there's the attack on their lands from the fires. Um, there's the attack on their own kind of respiratory systems, because even if they're not the fires, then, you know, there's been this uptick in recent months because of the smoke. Uh, so this uptick in the amount of respiratory illnesses of indigenous communities. Um, and of course, there's the attack, like you said, of the encroachment on indigenous communities, uh, particularly in the Amazon. Much of the deforestation that we've seen, and much of the def and much of the fires that we saw this last year, has been on indigenous communities, and that's very, very, very concerning. Um, in fact, I've been in touch with many of these communities for for reporting that I've done, but one in particular is the Caripuna, which is the far western, uh, in far kind of western Amazon of Hondonia, uh, and. And they sent me pictures, the chief there sent me pictures of many areas in his territory. And basically his territory was completely intact as of just a few years ago. They started to see land invasions happen starting, say, four or five years ago. But then with the government of Bolsonaro, it really took this uptick as land, like, you know, uh, not just, you know, as, 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 as illegal land grabbers moved into their land, loggers moved into their land and started really reaping areas. And the problem is that many of these indigenous territories are so big that they can't monitor the whole thing. They can't be at all spots. And even if they could, it's dangerous because these are small, at least the Caripuna, uh, they do not, there aren't that many Caripuna left. We're talking about, uh, they have a total in the village that he lives in less than a hundred people. Um, and so it's dangerous for them to be out trying to defend their own land, although they have. Uh, but so the areas that these people have moved into on are the outskirts where they can't necessarily be all the time. And he sent me some drone footage, uh, which is just devastating because 
If you look at satellite imagery of his territory, just a few years ago, it was just all green. The entire thing, you can see where roads and things had moved in nearby, um, but now it's, it's pot-marked. And the satellite images, you can see it's almost as if little square areas were just cut out. And, what, and, and, and just to explain the fires, the way the fires work is that it, you, know, you don't just set a fire in the Amazon and it burns. You have to go in, you cut down the force in those areas. You let that dry during the dry season, and then you go back and set the fire. That's how the fires are set. And that's how come we knew that this was going to be the highest year of fires way back in July, uh, June even. I was doing reporting, and we knew that this was going to be the highest year for fires in, 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 in more than a decade. And that's because it was the highest that we had seen the most amount of deforestation in a decade. So the fact that that deforestation was there, we knew that it was sitting there, and that's when people were going to move on and set those fires. So absolutely, and this is extremely dangerous. Uh, for like you mentioned, we've seen assassinations, we've seen killings. So people's lives have been, you know, at risk. And at the same time, the government has not been there to protect them because, of course, the Bolsonaro government has been gutting the indigenous agencies. It's been gutting the environmental agencies. Uh, it has not been uh, protecting indigenous communities or being out there to protect those indigenous communities from being from from having illegal land grabbers moving in. But of course, these are the people that Bolsonaro, these are Bolsonaro supporters. These are people that he's supporting. So we've had this juxtaposition where the, the, fa the lack of representatives, government representatives, to be able to protect these indigenous communities it's, has meant that these, these indigenous areas have been that much more open during coronavirus. And the fact there has been less people to be there to, to, to pay testimony and to, to witness and to document cases of illegal land grabs and what's not because of the coronavirus, it's really opened the doors for these communities to move in more and more. And we've seen that uh, in, in many, many indigenous communities across the Amazon. So that's extremely concerning. And yes, of course, the coronavirus has been lethal for in indigenous communities. Now, one tiny um, glimmer, this bright spot, if there is any, is the fact that many indigenous leaders that I've spoken with says that their communities have been returning to their traditional medicine and really depending on their traditional medicine to help protect them from coronavirus, to help increase their immune system to help to, to help cure themselves. They say they have absolutely been cured by their traditional medicine. And much of this traditional medicine is not available. I mean, these are things that they know from because their their ancestors uh, have lived in those areas for thousands of years. What is also fascinating is it's not only happened in Brazil, but I've been interviewing people in Ecuador and the Ecuadorian Amazon and very similar situation, the Ecuadorian Amazon, where people have been returning to their traditional medicine. So that has been kind of this one hope, uh, an exciting movement but it's come at the same time as they have lost all of these elders. And with the loss of these elders, they've been taking with them kind of their own ancestral knowledge. And so it's been a very, very complicated moment for, uh, for native communities here in Brazil. Absolutely fascinating. We could do a whole hour just discussing that issue, but we are running out of time. So Mike, I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you, uh, I, I well. 
I want to get an update on what's going on with Lula, what's going on with Sergio Moro, and all of the cast of characters around the 2016, uh, uh, you know, parliamentary coup that deposed the Workers' Party from power. Um, but I guess what I'd really like to ask you to do is to help those of our listeners who maybe are not up to speed on all of that on Lava Jato and the whole scandal and the conspiracy and Temer and the entire cast of characters. So I'm going to ask a, a really big favor of you, Mike, and could you try to jam all of that into the smallest nutshell possible, help keep uh, bring everybody up to speed, and then give us the update on what's going on with Sergio Moro and Lula? Oh, boy. Here we go. <clears throat> I'll do my best. Uh, well, the first most important thing is that Lula, of course, uh, you know, he was released from prison late last year. He was not released because they 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 threw out the case against him, but he was released because the Supreme Court ruled that people could not be held uh, in prison while they they still had appeals left uh, to be used. Listeners, we're talking about former president of Brazil, uh, Lula. Go ahead. Exactly. Thank you very much. Um, the most important thing is the fact that um, we've seen there has been more of these cases. So the, the same thing that happened in the case of the the impeachment of Dilma Rousseff, what you had with Lula and the cases against Lula is basically Judge Sergio Mora and the anti-corruption task force throwing up possible corruption allegations and charges against Lula to see what would stick, right? Uh, and so what we saw just a couple of days ago was that the seventh corruption accusations against ex-president uh, Lula was also thrown out. So this was the seventh corruption accusation against Lula that was thrown out or or shelved by a by a, a Sao Paulo court. And this one was of court um, was of course a, a case of money laundering and trafficking influence. They said that he was uh, that that Lula was e e exchanging influence in the Dilma government in exchange for favors to help his son's kind of business career. The judge said there was no proof. It was all based off on plea bargain plea bargain testimony with the heads of the construction company Algebrex, uh, and so he he he, he tossed that out. Um, now it's ex it's important to understand that all of the cases against Lula. They are rooted in plea bargain testimony. Even the even the case hit the corruption charge that 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 Judge Sergio Moro sent Lula to jail for, in which he served for 580 days. It, there was never any material evidence. It was all based on plea bargain testimony, and this is extremely concerning um, because that judge Sergio Moro was. Uh, it was it was an extremely biased judge, and this is very clear by several things. First off, I think we talked about this late last year was when the uh, the intercept um, Vaza Jato uh, they released all of these telegram messages from members of the anti corruption task force showing Judge Sergio Mora's own complicity and his own bias. He was actually helping the prosecution at the same time as he was pretending to be an independent judge. And in fact, what we saw just last week was um, was a situation where the Supreme Court actually threw out uh, testimony from uh, from Dilma's former um, chief of staff, of course, that was President Dilma, former chief of staff. And this testimony had been used against Lula. This was another one of these situations against Lula in a different case 
um, plea bargain testimony. And they, and they tossed it out because Judge Sergio Moro had released this testimony just weeks, I mean, just a couple of days before the first round elections in 2018 in order to try and hurt the left's chances of returning back to power. Now, there's a little bit of a context here. Judge Sergio Moro, who, if you remember, after Bolsonaro won the election in 2018, Bolsonaro invited Judge Sergio Moro, who had jailed Lula, to join him as his justice minister, which he did. Um, he remained there for a period of time before he fell out over issues and conflicts. Of um, He said that Bolsonaro was trying to influence, uh, politically influence the, the federal police for his own personal benefit. And so he left, he resigned. Now he's just taken a, 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 a new job with a, a U.S. company. And this is where things get really, really uh, complicated. This, this U.S. company, it's called Alvarez and Marshall. It's a consulting firm. And this consulting firm just shows this conflict of interest and, and the biasness that is at the root of Sergio Morton itself. They are now... They now oversee Odebrecht. Odebrecht was um, one of the largest Brazilian, the largest Brazilian construction firm. Now, this construction firm had contracts all over Latin America. And this construction firm, it was kind of the root of the anti-corruption case, right? In fact, they've it's been used in anti-corruption cases kind of all around because of uh, bribery and peddling and things like that. Well, now Moro has now taken a job as a director at Alvarez and Marshall, which is the U.S. consulting firm overseeing Olderbrecht now. Uh, Olderbrecht, of course, was run into the ground by the anti-corruption task force by Sergio Moro, uh, and, it, and it declared bankruptcy just last year. So it just shows, in fact, that the Brazilian Bar Association came out a couple of weeks ago and said that Moro would not be allowed to actually defend or practice law at Alvarez and Marshall because of a conflict of interest. So it's extremely complicated. Of course, there's also Moro has deep, deep ties with the United States. He had been back and forth with the United States uh, with, with, safe, you know, with State Department uh, groups and meetings and things like that. And of course, after those um, intercept messages were released. And after the, the news and information came about that, he made an emergency trip to the U.S. meeting with you know FBI agents and CIA agents. So it's very clear that he's been very tied into kind of U.S. security intelligence forces for a very long time. Um, and so the fact that all this happens right now, it's just a, a, another sign of just how clearly biased Sergio Moro was and also the deep ties. We cannot forget the fact that the FBI was 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 deeply uh, involved in the anti-corruption task force and had a very much of an interest uh, in in kind of their role there. So that's kind of the latest from from the world of of Lula and and Moro. The more that we see things play out, the more that is revealed that it is very clear that. It was largely a witch hunt. That's not to say there wasn't corruption. There was, but it was a witch hunt in order to take down the Workers' Party and take down Lula uh, in, to, to, to a very large extent. Any chance that we see a return of the Workers' Party and or of Lula himself uh, in the next two years? Because, of course, there was that question very recently of whether Lula could uh, potentially return to power. So could it happen? Uh, this, that is a good question that we should, uh, look into in the, uh, <laughs> in our next, the next time we talk and in the coming, in the coming years, it's not out of the question, but because of some of these other, um, <clears throat> corruption charges, which are still pending, he still cannot necessarily run 
for office, although some of those things could be thrown out. But the courts have, at least according to, there's a few months ago that a lower court had ruled on one of the cases and they had ruled on it um, and they had only made Lula eligible to run for office after, it was like a day or two after the next presidential election. So it was very clearly politically mapped out to ensure that Lula would still be blocked. Now, that doesn't mean that things won't change. Things are changing very, very quickly. They always are. This is Brazil. Um, so we, 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 we could see a Lula return. Um, it's the, this, but it's really, I, for me, it's, it's too early to, to talk about, uh, what things may look like in, in another two years. Well, it's not too early to talk about the new podcast. So Mike, tell us about Brazil on fire. What is the genesis of this podcast? What's driving you to make it? What is the format? What's it going to be like? What should people look forward to? Look, you know, I, um, my wife is Brazilian. And we've lived in Brazil several times and we moved back to the country in 2017, just after the coup against Dilma Rousseff. And when I moved back, my plan was, hey, I want to do reporting and I want to write a book about kind of the, the resistance to the coup, right? The resistance from social movements and, and people on the ground. And, and then suddenly what I saw in 2017, 2018 was the rise of, it was like you had the coup and from the coup came Bolsonaro. It, it it got worse, right? Instead of being resolved, uh, and it opened up a whole new chapter in Brazil and what Bolsonaro represented. Uh, you know, there's a reason why <clears throat> uh, the way I like to talk about it. This is the story of Bolsonaro's rise, his far right government that's setting the country ablaze, and how America helped him do it. And basically, it's based on all my reporting over <clears throat> the last three or four years. And it's just, it, it's for me. The, the connections and the ties to the United States. And I'm not talking about just like, you know, Trump and Bolsonaro, but I'm talking about culture war, culture war like that we know of in the U.S., um, but, but, but how it's being implemented here in Brazil and been implemented here in Brazil as an attack against the LGBTQ communities, uh, a, a attack against women's rights and feminism. Um, it's almost as if every layer of the left, there was a very clear and intentional attack on those areas in order to take down the left as much as possible. Well, obviously, workers' rights, we've seen that under the Bolsonaro government uh, with, the, with, with the, the Social Security reform, the pension reform that was passed under Bolsonaro, uh, and the labor reform that was passed under Michel Temer just before. This rollback of rights, this rollback of labor rights, all intentioned in order to really roll the left back around the country. Um, and I realized there is a much, much, much deeper story that people don't really understand. The libertarian groups that were extremely important in the rise of the right back in 2013, 2014, and then taking Dilma out of office, they've now consolidated uh, into taking political power and political office. They're like youth supporters have their own YouTube channels. The evangelical movement is extremely powerful uh, and they're growing more. They now represent roughly a quarter of the country and they continue to rise in terms of those numbers. And what the thing is, is that I have had this privileged chance to be at key moments over the last few years. You know, I was in front of Bolsonaro's house with his supporters on the night that he won. I was in uh, Sao Paulo when Lula holed himself up 
in the in the union offices there when he was ordered to to turn himself in to be jailed and he said i'm not going to do it and he, and he held out for over 48 hours and then he was sailed to curitiba and i was there when the helicopter arrived uh, i was in alcantara with you know local quilombola black traditional communities in the north who are you know of course fighting this the expansion of this satellite launch center with the United States. I've been in the Amazon. I've been all up and down around the country. I've been with Bolsonaro supporters in the South, and I was in the the, the evangelical church where the 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 preacher, the pastor of that church, is the one who married Bolsonaro in his in his last wedding. Uh, and I was even in in the town, the birthplace of Brazilian Nazism. And so I've had this amazing on the ground view, telling these stories, uh, usually in smaller reports. And I said, you know, there's a much larger story. We need to understand this, but we need to understand it. The, the connections that run so deep between Brazil and the United States, not just that, but for instance, Bolsonaro's own philosophical guru is a man by the name of Olavo de Carvalho, who lives outside of Richmond, Virginia. He's lived he moved to the U.S. back in 2005, 2006. He created an online philosophical school to train Brazilians in kind of his right-wing traditionalist thoughts. Uh, and in many ways, he opened the door for this resurgence of the right. And if you ask anybody in the United States, no one understands this. And so my plan with this podcast is to take listeners on a journey. It's going to be audio rich. It's going to be investigative. I want to take you on a journey and it's going to start from right before Bolsonaro's election with this rise of attacks and right-wing violence, white supremacist violence against the left and against black communities and LGBTQ. And we're going to move on throughout kind of chronological, but also sidestepping across what all this looks like. What does the legacy of the, of the dictatorship mean for Bolsonaro right now? You have to remember Bolsonaro was a military captain under the dictatorship. Um, and he is somebody who has, um, you know, he's always come out in support of the dictatorship. In fact, on the day of Dilma's impeachment, he was a congressman at the time, he voted to impeach Dilma. And at the time he did that in honor of, of the one of the few Brazilian uh, military uh, officers who was actually convicted of torture, convicted of crimes of, against humanity. And if you remember, Dilma Rousseff herself was tortured in the dictatorship. So these things we need to understand. We need to understand who Bolsonaro is and, those, and these deep connections with the United States because the culture war in many ways that's been imported. The connections with the United States, Bo, uh, um, Steve Bannon, the, the relationships, how did, what does that look like? Um, these are things that I've been seeing and seeing very, very close and had very intimate conversations with a lot of people on the ground. Um, and so for me, it's important to tell that story, but tell it in a really engaging way. We're going to come with me. We're going to, I'm, I'm giving, we're going to dive into it. You're going to ride beside me in the car and the taxis. You're going to stand beside the evangelical preacher and we're going to hear their thoughts and understand where are we headed and how all this fits together? And also, what do we learn? What can we learn from Brazil, you know, for the United States and elsewhere? What are the lessons that we need to learn from the left, but also how the right has taken back and moved against the left in so many ways here? In a lot of ways, this is almost like, like, a, like, a, like, a, like a testing ground uh, for, to, to implement some of these ideas and some of these, the, the ways that the right has been able to push itself in. And of course, at this time, we're also seeing kind of this 
this resurgence of the left and, and Bolsonaro's own kind of loss of, of, of power in a sense. So it's extremely exciting for me. I've been, you know, originally I wanted, like I said, I wanted to do this as a book. And then I realized maybe five or six months ago that it had to be done as a podcast because I have all this insane and amazing audio, um, but that I couldn't do it on my own. You know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm a freelance journalist. And so oftentimes the project just keeps getting pushed by the side because I have to, you know, uh, work to make things happen. I have to do the restories. And so that's why I launched this, this Kickstarter. Um, right now the, the goal is, uh, is $6,000. And of course that's not enough to do this entire podcast, but it's, it's a start. I have actually now made the 6,000, but I'm adding a, a stretch goal of 8,000 in order to be able to pay, um, a local musician to be able to make, music for the podcast to be able to pay an editor um to start to work with you on this and i'm going to try and shop this around and really get it out to either a podcast agency if possible uh or you know um or a radio station that is interesting and able to find a home for this thing and so i'm extremely excited because there are very 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 few podcasts <coughs> that take you on an in-depth journey over 11 or 12 episodes and are based abroad, that are based in Latin America. It almost just doesn't even exist. And that's because of the language difficulties and everything else. Uh, but this is something that I know really, really well. I've been doing so much of this, this reporting already. And now let's get, get really exciting. I, I get to sit down in, in the coming months, start to put this together to continue these interviews. Um, it's an exciting moment. It's, it's, it's a disturbing moaning. It's a scary story. But it's a story that parallels what we've been experiencing in the United States, uh, and it's a story that needs to be told. Absolutely. Congratulations on the new podcast. Listeners, go to Kickstarter, support uh, Brazil on Fire. Mike is uh, one of the best journalists in, in Latin America. He, of course, has his finger on the pulse of everything going on in Brazil, as you've heard in our conversation today. Uh, support the podcast, support his work. This is so critical that we have these perspectives from Brazil and Latin America. And I mean, again, as I mentioned at the beginning of, of the episode, Episode. And as I always do, this is what it means to support independent media. These are the kinds of perspectives that we want to have and the kind of perspectives that corporate uh, corporate paymasters will never pay for. So if you want that, then you got to help uh, keep it going. So, uh, Mike, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks for all the great work and congratulations on Brazil on Fire and best of luck to you. Thanks so much, Eric. I really appreciate it. And I, I tell you what, you can say congratulations when I'm when I finally finished it and it's out. Uh, and then you can have me back on again and we can talk talk more in depth. Of course I will. And of course I will congratulate you then as well. Listeners, thank you as always. Go to Counterpunch. Go to Counterpunch Plus. Get your subscription. Do what you got to do. Of course, be safe. Be healthy. Have a happy holiday. And we'll speak again real soon. <laughs>